Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, just being a part. What a beautiful spring day, and it's January. It's just amazing to see the weather that we've had. Uh, we've had a great couple of weeks where we have celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a church, gave the State of the Church address last week and talked about where we are. Uh, as a church financially, talked about finances and a message on that last week. And this week, we are starting a, a new sermon series called A Journey Toward God. And we're going to be covering and looking at the book of Exodus and looking at the people of God and in particular person of God in Moses who were on a journey toward God. It's a wonderful parallel of the birth of Jesus and what was going on at the time of the birth of Jesus and how all the hope came in the form of the baby that was born to be the deliverer. Um, it's also a wonderful parallel to our own lives, the things that we go through in our lives. And you're going to be able to see yourself through that story of the people of God as they go through the Exodus and Moses as he goes through his own personal journey. It's going to really parallel with your life and I think speak volumes to all of us here. And we're going to see that as we start going through this here today. Would you pray with me as we begin and jump into this message? Father... We want to hear from you. We want to grow in your grace, Lord. We want to understand how you came to a people then and how you come to us today. How, Lord, we can find hope and freedom in you. Like we've sung in those songs, Lord, that you battle for us. You are our victory. We can find hope and freedom in you. Show us that, Lord, as we open your word and start studying this together. Father, we give this time to you. We, we want to praise you. It's all about you and not about us. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to the book of Exodus. It will be the second book in from the beginning of your Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus. So turn to Exodus chapter 1. I want to talk about the people of God and how they were on this journey, how they were on an exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. The Egypt is a wonderful metaphor for lots of things in our lives. It's not only a literal place that the Israelites had to be set free from, but it also is a picture of the spiritual battle that all of us face, the spiritual journey that we are on in our own lives. Before we get into Exodus chapter 1, I want to give you a little bit of a background, a little bit of Bible history so you can understand where the story falls and how the people of God were trapped in Egypt, how they got there in the very first place. And it all starts with a person by the name of Abraham. You can find the story of Abraham in Genesis chapters 11 through 25. I would encourage you to go back and read about the story of Abraham. The Israeli people point back to Abraham as their father. They look at Abraham as their father, as well as Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. But let's talk a little bit about this. Abraham was given a promise by God, and the promise that he was given was that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Incredible things were going to come out of the life of Abraham. The problem was Abraham had no children. He was old. His wife was old. I'm not supposed to say women are old. She was older. Uh, she was past the birth stage of life, the past the being able to bear children stage. So there was a problem. How is God going to come through when it doesn't seem like it could possibly happen? F things feel impossible. Maybe in your own life, you've run into situations like that where things feel impossible. This cannot possibly happen. No good can 
can come out of this. Maybe it was a health diagnosis you got, and you feel like this is impossible. I, I don't know what's going to happen, yet God can come through in the impossible. He has a way of making the impossible possible. He gave Abraham a son, and that was the promise that was going to be given through you. A multitude of nations will occur. Now, I just want you to understand what a promise is. A promise defined is this. It's a declaration of what someone will do. A promise is an assurance that God gives his people so that they can walk by faith while they wait for him to work. And that's what a promise is. God's word is full of promises, and he gave you those promises so that you could hold on to them and walk while you're waiting on God to work. The promises may take years. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe it's a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Maybe it's a generation away. Who knows when it's going to happen, but God gives the promises so that we can hang on to them while we're waiting on God to work. In fact, it says in 2 Peter, these words, that God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So God has given promises, and he gave one to Abraham then. It was going to take a long time to work out, but he held on to the promise. And so what we had was this. We had Abraham. Had no children. He thought, what am I going to do? I need to have a son because I need to carry on my family line. God's not coming through. I know. I'll just make it happen. He took a slave who was one of the servants in his household, and he had relations with her and gave birth to a son whose name was Ishmael. That was not God's plan. That was not God's promise. He was trying to manufacture the promise himself. A little bit later, God finally gave him that promise. His wife, Sarah, who was barren, was going to give birth to a son. He did have a son, and his name was Isaac. And so that was that story of, of what was going to happen. We have Ishmael and we have Isaac. By the way, just keep that thought in mind, Ishmael. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Isaac had two sons. His two sons were Esau, who was the older son, and Jacob, who was the younger son. Jacob would be the fulfillment of the promise. Jacob's name was going to be changed to Israel. And you have here really the story of what it's going to look like, and that is the leading to what is known as the Arab race. The Arab race, who really is at war with Israel, and it still happens today, comes out of Ishmael and Isaac. And you have the promise of God coming out of the line of Isaac and Jacob. And this is where the promise to Israel is going to occur. Jacob had 12 sons. He had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. You know the story of at least one of those sons. His name was Joseph. Joseph was number 11 that was born of the 12 sons. It was the first son that was born to Jacob and his beloved wife, Rachel. The other sons were born to his other wife. This was going to be born to Rachel. He was basically half-brother with his 10 older brothers. Now, Joseph was very much favored by his father loved by his father. And you know the story of the coat of many colors that we have talked about or you've heard before. 
The brothers were jealous of Joseph. They didn't like him at all because he got his father's attention and was the favorite. So they devised a plan and they thought, here's what we're going to do. We can't bring ourselves to truly kill him because that's wrong and we don't want to murder him. He is our brother, in fact. So let's do this instead. Let's throw him into a pit. And when the slave traders come by who gather people and take them into Egypt, we'll just sell him to them. And that's exactly what they did. They sold their brother into slavery. Joseph went from where they were living to Egypt in slavery. God's hand was upon Joseph, though. And God's hand helped Joseph through his blessings and through his presence to go from a slave boy all the way up to second in command in that nation. God blessed him. God protected him. God was with him. Back in the home front, though, the brothers told Jacob that he's dead. Your son is dead. Lion killed him. He's dead. There's just blood everywhere. And can you imagine as a father hearing that? And can you imagine the deception of these, these, these brothers, these 10 other brothers who would tell their father and bring that kind of grief upon him? Back in Egypt, Joseph, who had risen to second in command, was warned by God in a dream that a great famine is coming across the lands. Prepare yourself. Get yourself ready. And so Joseph prepared for a number of years, seven years, to store up seven years' worth of food because of this great famine that was going to occur. Egypt was prepared for the famine. Back here, Jacob and his family were not prepared. They had no idea this was coming, and it caught them off guard. And because it caught them off guard, they had no food, they had no provisions to get themselves through this very drastic famine time of life. They had heard that Egypt had food, and so they decided, let's send some of our family there, and let's beg for food or trade for food or something. We've got to get our hands on some food. So they took up and went over to Egypt. There, they were reunited with their brother, who was, they thought, still in slavery. They called for the rest of the family, the father, everybody else. They came over to Egypt. Reuniting took place. Reconciliation took place. Forgiveness took place. And now the family, who was over there, is all here together in Egypt. And because his son, because their brother, had risen to second in command, they enjoyed a blessed life. Life was good. It was provided. And their family which was about 70, began to grow. And over a number of years, that family would grow and grow and grow. And so you have these 12 sons who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel taking place, and that led to Joseph. Now, about 300 years went by from the time of Joseph until the story in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And that's where we're going to pick up our story because all of the people of God are right there in Egypt and they're living together and they're working together and life is good together until Israel got too big and too powerful and they began to worry and be concerned. Let's look at this story. And what we're going to look in particular today in chapter one of the book of Exodus is the strategy of the enemy. What we're going to see is not only the strategy of the enemy toward them, it's the same strategy that the enemy is employing today, and it's also the same strategy that he employs toward us in particular. 
as well. Let's look at Exodus chapter 1. We'll read this and we'll come back and look at the three strategies of the enemy. Here's what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now these are all of the brothers of Joseph, each with his own household. There was Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already there. He was already in Egypt. Well, over a course of time, Joseph died, and all his brothers died, and all of that generation died. And as 300 years went by, the people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with the Israelites. Now there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. He had nothing to do with Joseph. That was well before his time. And he was concerned about the number of Israelites that were there in his land. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad." And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, let me stop right there. Just help you to understand what a midwife is. There were some questions at first service asking, well, what, what is a midwife? A midwife was essentially the doctor and the nurse of that day. A, a midwife would help in the labor and delivery of a child that would be born. And they would go from house to house, whatever women were in labor labor and they would assist with the liberty, uh, delivery. They were the labor and delivery department. The doctors and the nurses of the day were the midwives. So that's who they are. And Pharaoh said to the midwives, if you see a son that is being born, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she can live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So in other words, they were lying, saying they're having the babies before we even get there. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. 
but you shall let every daughter live. So here's what we have. We have the story of a people that were in slavery. They were in bondage. And we can identify with this, although we are not experiencing the exact same thing. We don't experience the bondage that they experienced, but every person born in this world is born enslaved to sin. We are in, we are in spiritual bondage, in slavery to sin, every one of us, and we need to be set free. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We need to be delivered from this. That was the picture of the scene of what was going on with the Israelites of the day. They were born into slavery, they were born into this system, and they didn't know what to do. How are we going to get out of this? Well, that was the ultimate goal that the enemy had. The enemy did not want to let them go. And the enemy of your soul, Satan himself, who is the ruler of this world, does not want to let people go. He doesn't want to let cultures go. He doesn't want to let countries go. He doesn't want to let individuals go out of the grasp that he has. He does not want to see people set free. We're going to see today the enemy's plan of attack, and it's found in the verses that we read. There's three things that I want you to see about his plan of attack. The first one, the first plan of attack is the most subtle of all three. It gets progressively worse. The first attack is this. It says that the enemy dealt shrewdly with them. Let's look at what it says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. He said, the people are too many. Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. What does it mean to deal shrewdly with them? And how is this something that we can relate to today? Well, the word shrewdly means mischievous. It means deceitful, devious, craftiness in dealings with others. It takes the form of cunning and deceitful scheming for sinful and selfish ends. What are, what are some pictures of that? We don't, we don't know exactly what Pharaoh did to deal shrewdly with them. But let me give you some examples of what that could possibly be. Somebody who deals shrewdly with you smiles to your face and plots behind your back. Somebody who deals shrewdly does not want to see you get ahead. Somebody who deals shrewdly wants to see you drop your guard. And when you drop your guard and when they smile to your face, they can plot destruction for you. I'll give you an example of this. The end times, in my opinion, are right around the corner. And I, I, I'm not a, a prophet. I am not a doomsday kind of a person. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just go by what the Bible says. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, here's what you're going to see. You will see wars and rumors of wars. He says, nation will rise against nation. Now, the word nation is the word ethnos in the Greek language, and it means ethnic group. You will see wars and rumors of wars, and you will see ethnic group rise up against ethnic group. Now, just to answer that question, are we seeing any of that today? Did you know that today we have more, more conflicts going on, more wars and conflicts happening than at any time in history, far greater than at the end of World War II and during World War II? In fact, I'll try to show see if you can see this. I don't know if you can. Um, it's kind of hard to see this. This is called the Global Conflict Tracker. All of the orange dots are active conflicts that are happening in the world today. 
and it goes everywhere from uh, from the groups in Haiti, groups that are in uh, Mexico, which would be things like, if it will pop up here, criminal violence in Mexico that's significant to the United States. Um, Haiti, the groups that are in Haiti, if I can get this to go away, uh, the groups that are in Haiti, come on. Um, instability in Haiti and it's worsening is what the global conflict tracker said. All of these dots are places where conflicts are occurring. So here's some examples of this. North Korea fired multiple cruise missiles today. I don't know if you heard that. It was about, it was just uh, maybe 14, 16 hours ago, multiple cruise missiles in testing. Um, there was a report today that multiple U.S. soldiers were killed, uh, dozens that were injured in Iranian-backed terrorist attacks, but that's not new. There have been 159 attacks on U.S. forces since middle, the middle of October. We have the Russia-Ukraine war that is happening, Israel and Hamas with Iran, who's really backing all of it, China and Taiwan, the border with the Mexican drug cartels and the smuggling and sex trafficking that is going on, um, all of these kind of things, and those are just a handful of the things that we are seeing around the world in the Chi South China Sea that we're seeing in, again, North Korea. You're seeing uh, India and Pakistan, the battles that are going on there, and that's what's happening in the world today. So Jesus says, you will see wars and rumors of wars. But it goes on to say this in Ezekiel, that that will create the situation for a great leader to arise that will bring peace. We call that person the Antichrist, the antithesis of Christ, the opposite of the Messiah. And this person will rise up and bring peace around the world to all of the instabilities that are seeing. We're seeing what Jesus said starting to take place. And then in the book of Ezekiel, it says this, that Israel will negotiate some kind of a peace agreement with this Antichrist, and Israel will let their guard down. What does that mean? Well, it says there that the bars will come off the windows, and they won't have to worry about border security, and they will feel, for the very first time, a peace that goes over the nation. But here's what you're going to learn. It's a false peace. Because the enemy was dealing shrewdly with them. And when the peace, supposedly, that was really false, is there, then the Antichrist and forces will attack Israel. And it will be the worst thing that Israel has ever seen in the entire nation. It will be this great day of trouble like the world has never seen. It's called Jacob's Trouble in the Bible. That's what shrewdly is. Shrewdly is, I'm going to smile at your face until you let your guard down and you feel like at peace, and then I'm going to pounce. That's on a, on a worldwide scale, but we see that in our country today, too. The fake peace that happens, so you start to let your guard down, and then the enemy starts to attack. We see that personally. Let me give you some personal examples of that. It's called addiction. Now, Alcohol is a divisive subject in our, in our culture. Most people think it's just perfectly fine. It's a divisive issue in the church. Most of the churches have gone to the point of saying, yeah, that's perfectly fine. I want you to know that it can be destructive and very much is destructive. And here's what happens. In dealing shrewdly, the enemy says, oh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't affect anybody 
one drink won't hurt anything. You deserve it. You've had a hard day. You deserve to relax and do this. And so you buy into that and you let your guard down. And then all of a sudden you find what begins to happen. And that is you are trapped. It's like it's taken over my life. And now you've lost job and you've lost finances and your marriage is in trouble and your kids are a mess. And it's because I just, the enemy was dealing shrewdly. And I didn't think it was a big deal. And I just let my guard down. And then all of a sudden, I'm stuck and I'm trapped and I'm enslaved by this thing. Does that make sense? So that's what it is. This is why Paul warns us and he says to us, he says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. One of the pieces of the full armor of God is your mind and not letting your guard down, not trusting everything, not ever, not ever just letting your guard down and feeling like I'm at rest. There is a battle that is always going on and it's a spiritual battle that is happening. And so that's the first line of attack. He dealt shrewdly with them. But it didn't stop there. Now, now what, did it, what did that mean? Again, I don't know. But it could have been things like, hey, we'll give you some benefits. We'll, it's, you're not really in slavery. You're, we're going to employ you by the government. The government's employing you now. And we're going to pay you. And we're going to provide for you. And all the people thought, well, that's a great deal. And they let their guard down. Do you know, in our society... That that's exactly what happened. We let our guard down right after World War II. World War II was known as the greatest generation. You know what happened after World War II? A group decided they wanted to tear away the fabric of the American society. The values, the following, and the pursuit of God, the relationship that people had with God, the traditional family values that come out of the Bible, the 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 the. Uh, cause and effects that come out of the Bible, consequences, we're going to just strip all of that away and put in something different in the place. So how did they start? Well, they went into the universities. And in the universities, they began to teach people, the young people, the next generation in the 50s and 60s, and they began to teach them a message that was anti-God and anti-value. And then that group had children. And that group started to raise children. And then that group of children had their own children. And then that group began to infiltrate and get into every form of society. Whether it's the school system or whether it is governmental systems or, or uh, the district attorneys, whatever it might be. And they have torn at the fabric. It's a long game. Not a short, quick game. It's the long game. And that's what the dealing shrewdly is. Second thing that the enemy did was then he employed and applied ruthless oppression. Then it became overt. It was shrewd at first, behind the scenes, smile to your face while plotting behind your back. But now I don't have to smile at your face anymore. Now I'm going to ruthlessly oppress you. And again, this is, this is what the verse said that we read. So they, notice this, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Well, that's the strategy. I will subtly hook you, and then I will ruthlessly oppress you. And again, look at the world, look at the nation, look individually. Again, go back to the example. may have stepped on some toes when I talked about alcohol, but let's go back to that example. Hey, it's subtle. It won't hurt anybody. One drink here and there. It didn't ever affect anybody. And then it hooked you, and now it is ruthlessly oppressing you. It's like, I can't not drink. I can't quit this. I am wrecking everything in my life with this. It is just oppressing me. It's got me, and I can't get free. And that's what this is. It is a ruthless oppression that begins to occur. And that was the second plan of the enemy to create a ruthless oppression where now I have you. Now you are hooked. Now I'm going to step on you. First was just subtle. We'll smile to your face. We'll make some agreements. Now I've got you. Now I'm going to step on your throat. Well, that led to the third part. And the third part of the enemy's plan in chapter 1 for the people that were there who we used to live in agreement with and they used to be our neighbors. And the third part was the enemy inflicted unthinkable pain. And it almost seems like to me it parallels what happened to the Jewish people in World War II. They were our neighbors and now we're going to smile at their face and plot behind their back and then we are going to oppress them and then we are going to inflict unthinkable pain upon them and that is we are going to wipe out millions of them. We are going to see them killed and that's what happened here. Because if you go back to what we read, it says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew wives, when you, see, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you're helping them in the labor and delivery and you see a son, kill him. It's pretty heartless. Kill him. If you see a son that is born, cut his throat. That's what he was saying. Kill him. And then he said... Because they did not listen to him, he said to all the people, okay, they're not doing the job, let's get all of society to do the job for us. And that is if you see a son born to them, go rip the baby out of their arms and throw him into the Nile so they can drown. We'll get all of society to agree to this. That was unthinkable pain. Can you imagine being one of the parents? that had to go through that, where people would come up and rip the baby out of your arms and throw them into the Nile. The enemy's plan starts shrewdly, moves to oppression, and then continues with incredible pain. And what is the purpose of all of that? Well, it's to show you that we're in control and you're not. But ultimately, the purpose of all of it was to cause them to give up, to lose hope, to be discouraged, and accept defeat. And if you could just get in line and understand all of that, then it's going to be okay. But if you don't give up, if you don't lose hope, if you're not discouraged, if you don't accept that you're defeated, I'm going to make it worse and worse and worse. 
if we are truly where I think we are in the world, nearing end times events, according to what the Bible says, and I'm not going to predict to you when that's happening. I'm just saying watch the signs of the times. Just pay attention. If we are getting there, there will be a time that Christians will be persecuted in the same way. At first, it's shrewd. Then it becomes into outright oppression. And then it turns into unthinkable pain. Maybe a loved one that is killed for their faith. Maybe a loved one that is thrown into jail because of their faith. And you start to see unthinkable pain. And why am I doing this to you, the enemy says? Because I want you to just give up. And I want you to lose hope. And I want you to be discouraged. I want you to accept defeat. And just toe the line. Deny Christ and you'll be fine. But if you hold on to him, bad things will happen. And that is the ultimate plan of the enemy. He does not want to let you go. Every person that finds Jesus finds freedom. They find deliverance. They find redemption. But the enemy doesn't want that. He wants you to be oppressed and depressed and giving up and feeling discouraged and accepting defeat. I don't want to end with this because that's too depressing. I want to end with something different. Because in the midst of all of that, there was a glimmer of hope. And who was it that gave the glimmer of hope? Was it just some incredibly strong, massive guy? If you guys have watched the series, uh, Reacher series, is that the kind of guy that we're looking at? Six foot four, muscular, he's the guy that brings hope. No. You know who it was that brought hope and spoke truth? The midwives. The most unlikely of all, they're the ones that defied the Pharaoh and spoke truth. And here's what they did. The response was they feared God and God blessed them. And so let's look at what it says. But the midwives, even though Pharaoh had given them this command, they feared God more than they feared him. What could he possibly do to them? He, he could take their life. He could have them killed. They didn't fear death. They feared the one who has the power of heaven and hell in his hands. And that was the fear that they had. They had the fear of God. So they stood up to the king and said, no, we will not do it. We will not kill the children. We will not do, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the male children live despite consequences. What were the consequences? Well, all we have in the text is him saying, why have you done this and let the male children live? Now they lied to him. He doesn't tell the rest of the story. I don't know what the rest of the story is, but my guess is, my assumption is he probably killed a number of them. In anger and rage, because they stood up and dared to defy him and instead feared God. God rewarded that. And the reward was this God dealt well with the midwives. 
And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God blessed the ones who were willing to stand up and say, no, I will do what God wants me to do. We are going to be faced with that very dilemma. A time in life where we will have to make the conscious choice and say, no, I fear God more than I fear you. And I am willing to do what God wants me to do. I don't know what that's going to mean and what that's going to look like, but I can guess. I can guess it could cost people lives because that's what the Bible tells us. It could cost a job. It could cost finances. It could cost family members. It could cost prison. I don't know how that's all going to look and how it's all going to work out. It's only speculation. But God sees the heart that says, I fear you more than I fear what society or what my next door neighbor says. God, I will trust you with everything. And God blesses that. That was the first response that is incredibly powerful. And the second we will see starting next week. And that is God gave them hope in the form of a baby. And this is where it parallels the gospel. That in this little child, born into this world, the Savior, the Deliverer, in this particular case, the Redeemer, has come. And that's where hope lies. I want to end just with this thought, and that is, are you willing, have you prepared your heart to stand up for God despite what happens in this world that you will say with the midwives, I fear God more than I fear man. And I trust him with everything in my life. That's where he wants us to be. And that's what he wants to be planted in your heart. The enemy has a, a goal to defeat you, to hold on to you, to discourage you, to cause you to give up. And God says, no, keep going. You keep trusting me. You keep following me. There was an old parable that was told, and it was a told of a frog. And some of you have heard this parable before. The story was of a frog who was chasing after flies. And he jumped up on the edge of a milk pail as he was chasing after flies. And as he was on the edge of the milk pail, it was half full of milk. He fell into the bottom. And he was going to drown. He found himself trapped there and he tried to kick his feet with all of his might to stay above the water. Every so often he just was so tired and so exhausted he just would give up and he would sink to the bottom. And as he sunk to the bottom his nostrils would fill with milk and he would start to start to feel that suffocation of drowning and he said no I can't give up I can't quit and so he would with all of his strength the little frog would kick his legs and keep himself above the top of the milk and hours went by and he continued to kick with all of his might and he began to do circles and laps in that little bucket as he began to kick and then an amazing thing happened over the course of time of constantly kicking and constantly churning the milk it turned into butter and as it was butter he didn't sink to the bottom any longer he had a firm thing to step on By not giving up, he was able to survive. 
the enemy wants you to quit, to give up, to sink to the bottom and drown. And God says, no, fear me, trust me, keep kicking. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for meeting with us, for being here. Lord, I'm excited to walk through this journey together as we look at the people of God and the leader that you called for those people to understand what our lives should be like. Lord, there's some incredible things we are going to learn through this study, and I can't wait to get to them. But Lord, please bless us, encourage us, help us to continue to persevere, to keep kicking our legs even when we feel like giving up. Thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would like extra prayer, we're going to have a couple of our elders up here at the front tables. They would be willing to pray with you if you'd like some extra prayer. If not, have a great day and hope to see you back here next week.